Hello and welcome back to Take Orally, the podcast that allows the free movement of knowledge. Never mind Brexit, we're still here. Uh, it's been too long, glad to be back. I'm still Jamie and uh, in this episode we're looking at uh, anti-epileptic medication. So we brought our, f- our favourite pharmacist, Canal favorite Go Hill pharmacist. is here. Hello Canal. Hello JT, what's going on? How are we doing? I'm it's, very well. It's weird to be with you without a glass of wine in hand. I know. Very often we, we have a we have a drink on the go, but um Well I happened to bring this bottle that, No, I didn't I didn't really bring a bottle. <laughs> um I can barely talk today because I appear to have a bit of a cough, so um I'm sure the listeners will be pleased that they're gonna hear mostly from you. But that wasn't part of the deal. <laughs> that wasn't part of the deal. And it's, uh, and it's Valentine's Day today as well. Happy you, Valentine's Day, JT. It, oh, happy Valentine's Day, Canal. You know, we've left our significant others at home just oh, no. specifically to record this podcast. Right Absolutely. Now. Uh, this this is the only way I want to spend Valentine's Day. Uh, <laughs> Billie Eilish's new song is out for the Bond film. It's a momentous day. Amazing. Um, so, anti-epileptics. Um, these are an important group of drugs. Certainly in A&E, make sure that we are prescribing these because bad things can happen. Absolutely. And they're also a drug that can complicate other things as well mm. there are a series of there are a group of drugs sorry that's it um, and a, a lot of your 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 job is making sure patients are getting them are on the right ones as well yeah so epileptic drugs in in acute care so obviously there's two situations that we'll use anti-epileptic drugs within sort of emergency department one would be our chronic epilepsy patient or our chronic seizure patient who comes in with an unrelated problem where we're obviously treating their acute illness, but we have to be very mindful about what we're doing in terms of managing their chronic epilepsy whilst they're in the department. And the other worry, obviously, is the, the first presentation of seizures or the epileptic patient who presents in status and we have to manage them. So we actually see quite a lot of these mm. patient subtypes and there's different ways of treating them in that case. But they're, they are very worrying. They're a worrying patient cohort. For me and our, our prioritisation in ED for pharmacists, they fall in our sort of urgent urgent patient cohort so we go see them very quickly to make sure they don't deteriorate cool it all works quite well as it stands now but i guess you you kind of almost have to start with a bit of a definition about epilepsy and a bit of the history of, of seizures and things like that because it, it's it's a condition that probably still has a bit of um bit of stigma attached to it really doesn't it if yes and uh a diagnosis that that uh yeah, obviously it has connotations yep. with, with uh, DVLA and uh, for women, um, fertility and, and pregnancy yeah. and so on. That's it. Um, should point out that um, all information that we're going to go through is, is correct at our time of recording mm-hmm. and uh, guidelines are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals, NHS Trust. Your other trust guidelines may vary. And I, and I should also point out that I'm not a neurology epilepsy pharmacist. Well, I'm a not a neurologist either, so <laughs> together we'll get through this. Uh, and uh, any views and opinions are the speaker's own, so whatever Canal says is his view only. Um, so epilepsy, these are, these are neurological conditions that cause seizure of some variety yeah which can be the what i was taught is the grand mal or what we now the generalized seizure yeah, well, I don't, I don't think we body. use grand mal and petty mal anymore do yeah. we? So it's all partial and generalized i yeah. think are the, are the two sort of terms we use now so i think the way the way that i think of seizures and so not necessarily moving straight into the the drugs themselves but provoked seizures because obviously the main pathology of epilepsy is, is seizures the seizure is a symptom uh, and epilepsy is the diagnosis, the syndrome of the diagnosis, theoretically. So there's 
provoked seizures, I guess you'd say. So these are going to be your true elepti epileptiform seizures that are provoked by, say, a space-occupying lesion, um, things that are by electrolyte imbalance, so hyponatremia, um, things like hypoglycemia. Um, so there's lots of provoked reasons that somebody might have a seizure. Hypothermia, particularly febrile convulsions in, in children, this would this could trigger a seizure. Um, even stress can trigger a seizure. And these are provoked kind of things. That's one category, and that to a certain extent is reversible. If we're reversing the cause of that, we're mm. reversing any risk of seizures in future. Uh, even drugs, so some illicit substances will cause seizures. Remove that problem, and then you've sort sorted the problem of the seizures. The other, the other side of the coin is the non-provoked seizures, so the ones that don't have a specific cause related to them, and that's kind of where you get your epilepsy syndromes from, uh, and that isn't really well, very well understood mm. as it stands now. So, why people develop epilep epilepsy that's unprovoked? Uh, so, there's talk about. So, basically, we're talking about uncoordinated action mm. potentials and uncoordinated um, and unmitigated electrical activity in the mm. CNS. Mm could be caused by a variety of things. People can have genetic problems with their ion channels in the CNS. Their CNS neurons are more excitable. Um, people can have longer term electrolyte issues or head injuries, things like that, which will long term cause structural damage to the brain, which will then cause epilepsy type syndromes. So there's a lot of reasons, but I think a lot of it's not really that well understood. Um, we know some genetic conditions, things like um, I think if memory I think Down syndrome are more predisposed to being epileptic, if memory serves. Yes, and, could be wrong. Uh, an an Angleman syndrome, Angelman syndrome. Oh, I haven't heard of that. Angleman, Angleman, Angelman syndrome. Angelman syndrome. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, yeah so these are genetic certain, conditions. certain genetic, yeah. Yeah, so they're <laughs> genetic conditions that predispose you to more um, excitation within your CNS, which will trigger a seizure. You get synchronous firing of your neurons. Mm. So, move on to the drugs, as it stands, which is sort of my bag. Um, really quite difficult, because some of these drugs are very, very, very complicated in their mechanisms of action. And they're not even that well understood now, exactly how they work. They just kind of work. Mm. So, the sort of history of epilepsy goes that the, the first sort of anti-epileptic drug, don't suppose you might know what that is? Lithium, probably? No, not lithium. Well, lithium was definitely one of the early... Lithium bromide and bromide uh. was actually the first anti-epileptic drug that had any real efficacy. Uh, and that was used in, like, the 1800s. It um, was quite effective, actually. So they used bromide complexes, potassium bromide and uh, sodium bromide as sort of calming, angiolytic kind of, um, kind of therapies. Um, the mechanism isn't actually that well known. It's still they still use bromide complexes in veterinary medicine even now. Mm. Um, mechanism isn't that well understood, but we thought that bromide is a halogen ion, and one of the big um, mechanisms for stopping seizures is um, the chloride ion in the CNS on the post the postsynaptic cleft. Uh, and bromide kind of looks like chloride in the same charge, so you can get some bromide into the into the neurone and it stops the excitability so that's been proposed but bromide is awful stuff because it, cause, it causes bromism Brom, bromism i think it's called bromism and that's a syndrome where lots of bromide causes like lethargy and drowsiness well it was used to chemically castrate homosexuals that as well so actually interestingly if memory serves i think the original postulated reason that people would have epileptic seizures was masturbation 
moving on. <laughs> I think. I'm pretty sure that's a... Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Uh, for you single people out there. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> excellent. So what was the first, uh, was it? What? So the first sort of commercially available anti-epileptic <laughs> drug um, was phenobarbitone. So ah. This is a bar- barbiturate-style um, drug. So that was the first one that was actually marketed as a medicine. Very powerful anti-epileptic medicine, very good anti-epileptic medicine. It works really well. Um, barbiturates sort of gave way to uh, phenytoin after a while, which we, we found out that you could use phenytoin and it would start working on sodium channels, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, in a little bit more detail in a minute. Uh, and then that gave way to probably the modern version of, of uh, barbiturates, which are the benzodiazepines. So barbiturates are very similar to benzodiazepines in the way they work, but they're a lot more toxic, and there's a lot more things to worry about with barbiturates than benzos, so they're not used as much in clinical practice. But you do find some older people, people in their 70s, 80s, 90s, who are diagnosed as epilepsy in their 20s, and they're still on barbiturates, and they're quite happy still taking them, so you will see them occasionally. But lots of old, lots of the old-fashioned drugs sort of discovered before 1980 so sort of 1950 to 1980 1990 there was your big players within anti-epileptic drugs the first generation drugs so these are your phenytoins your barbiturates uh, your benzodiazepines valproate carbamazepine these are the big players in um, in anti-epileptic therapy really good drugs with really good uh, efficacy they stop seizures that have a lot of side effects, mm. like a lot of nasty side effects, um, and they will be, they are, they will stop seizures. They're very, very effective, but you have to go along with the adverse drug reactions. Um, probably 1990 onwards is where we've had the mo- more modern second, third generation anti-epileptic agents. So these are your sort of Kepras of the world, your Lamotrigine, um, your Gabapentin and Pregabalin, which were originally anti-epileptics, um, with more novel mechanisms, which are a little bit cleaner as well. So they don't cause quite as many adverse drug reactions. Um, do have some still, but obviously because of the way we now look at pharmacovigilance and clinical trials, it's very difficult to trial a medicine um, versus gold standard for epilepsy because it's so dangerous to have a seizure. So typically clinical trials for these newer drugs, so any anti-epileptic that's out these days, you can't just give them that versus giving establishing comparing them with somebody who's on carbamazepine, for example, it's not ethical. So typically, you'll give one person carbamazepine and another person carbamazepine and another and your new drug, and then you'll try and see if there's an additional benefit. So quite a lot of these new drugs are actually licensed for dual therapy okay. rather than monotherapy, um, even though we use quite a lot of them monotherapy already. So it's a bit of a, bit of a misnomer as it stands. So, yeah, lots of drugs, very, very interesting. I suppose the one thing we should touch on really quickly is the thing that I never really understood and when I had to really think about is what is the risk of having a seizure and mm. why this is so, why this is a really worrying thing to occur. So, I guess you think most, most people, when they think of seizures, they'll think of a full tonic-clonic grand mal-style seizure where you get sort of rapidly synchronized rigidity and then um, muscle relaxation over and over and over again and that will cause you to shake and that's your sort of classic epileptic seizure Um, so the one thing to consider is if anybody can have a epileptic seizure like that at any particular point in time 
the worry is that that can happen. They don't have any control over their body and they could be in a very high risk situation at that point. So if that happens to you when you're driving, if that happens to you when you're swimming or operating a really heavy machinery or something like that, you can put yourself in potentially a life-threatening um, life situation. And the other worry you get also is, so there's the epileptic sudden death syndrome. SUDEP. SUDEP, SUDEP. So that's literally a case where a seizure, somebody can be in status. So every year in the UK, we're kind of just looking at a bit of literature now. About a thousand people will die from that, related to, um, from seizures related in the UK. to epilepsy. Yeah. Um, there's problems with things like positional asphyxia. So a status epilepticus, so a prolonged seizure, Theoretically, somebody could not really have any control over their muscles of their neck and they can get themselves into a situation where they'll cut off their airway and they can die from as asphyxiation, which is a real worry. People can break bones, people can break ribs, people can dislocate bones. Um, really, really, really dangerous things that are potentially life-threatening as well. Mm. Of course, so status epilepticus, that's, the, um, that's when your seizure lasts longer than uh, five, five minutes. minutes. So yeah, it's a prolonged minutes. seizure. And that's sort of, we've, um, we've agreed that that's kind of the, <clears throat> the limit for where yeah. you're starting to look yeah. at da yeah. physical damage yeah. to the body. Which I find quite difficult because when you speak to a bystander who may never have seen, you know, it, it's your loved one who's having a seizure, who's never seen a seizure before, and they'll go, oh, they were seizing it, it felt like half an hour it probably wasn't it was probably a couple of minutes but when it's your loved one doing that it obviously feels yeah. like a long time um so yeah longer than five minutes or um recurrent seizures with no recovery period in yeah. between so they, they remain postictal so that's that's what we mean when we say status absolutely which cool. is which is a real way um so a lot of people listening to this will probably be learning about the, the pharmacology about these drugs and they may well have sort of oski scenarios where they may have to talk to a patient about some of these drugs and counsel mm. them beforehand uh, so shall we start having a look at, at some of them yeah let's go for it so i guess the first thing that we've got to, we have to look we have to delve a little bit into the mechanism of action of, of seizures themselves and this is quite difficult to do without lots of diagrams and stuff because it is incredibly complicated so consider so what we'll do is we'll, we'll break this down <laughs> to simplicity i think so three abstract concepts in your head there is a nerve nerve fiber we'll call it the the presynaptic nerve fiber there's then a gap and then there's the another synapse yeah a synapse and then there's we're keeping it simple man right okay synapse that's a big word you said uh, presynaptic <laughs> so i was just saying you know there's, pre, there's a synapse uh, post. there is then a postsynaptic neuron uh, and there's two different types of postsynaptic neurons. There is the excitatory postsynaptic neuron, and there is the inhibitory postsynaptic neuron. So three players here. The accelerator and the brake. Exactly. So the whole way that you get this um, synchronized, out of control electrical um, disturbance in the CNS is you get a nerve impulse that comes down that first presynaptic neuron. It reaches the end of it. And what that then does is it causes vesicle release at the end of the uh, at the end of the neuron. So the electrical activity stops. That electrical activity stimulates neurotransmitters to go out into the synapse. And the really important one that we worry about is something called glutamate. So all this glutamate goes into the cleft. The glutamate then binds to the postsynaptic excitatory neuron. And by doing that it would then trigger another action potential and that continues down the rest of the nerve. So that's called the excitatory pathway. So presynaptic neuron, 
Synapse fires glutamate. The glutamate binds to a receptor. The receptor is called the NDMA receptor. And that then causes a big influx in sodium, which generates the action potential, and then we continue the electrical activity down the neuron, and it keeps going. Now, the job of the inhibitory neuron, uh, postsynaptic neuron, um, is to stop that from happening. And what that does is that uses a different neurotransmitter, which goes into the cleft, to counteract some of the glutamate, to stop any overexcitation. And that's a neurotransmitter called GABA, which a lot of people might be familiar with. GABA goes into the cleft, and it doesn't bind with the uh, NDMA receptor, it binds with the GABA receptor, which is another receptor on the excitatory um, postsynaptic cleft. And what that does is that causes a chloride ion to open up, and then you get chloride rushing in. Chloride is a negatively charged ion, and that counteracts the positively charged sodium that the glutamate does. So that controls the whole situation. So that's sort of a, a whistle stop of the way the pharmacology between the synapses. So there was lots of hand waving then. There was. You can't see how much just gesticulating <laughs> I just did with my hand. That's the way I talk. I use gesticulation. So effectively, if we consider that seizures are generated by sort of two basic mechanisms. One mechanism is there's too much, there's too much overexcitation. So for whatever reason, there's too much sodium flying into those neurons, and there's too much glutamate being thrown into the cleft and causing the the excitation at the on the postsynaptic neuron. So all glutamate mediated. Uh, that's one one way that we get these these seizures um, happening. The other way is that we can also get under inhibition from the postsynaptic cleft. So somebody's glutamate system could be absolutely fine, but if their GABA um, inhibition isn't as effective as somebody else's, then they don't get enough inhibition, the brake doesn't work, so to speak, uh, and then you'll actually get these seizures being triggered. So these are the two key mechanisms of how seizures um, are propagated, and there are two key strategies of how we stop seizures in their path. Makes sense? Makes sense. Makes sense. It's quite tricky. So effectively, whatever we do, whatever drug we're using, we're looking to correct these kind of problems. Either by reducing the overexcitation or increasing the under-inhibition. Exactly. That's, that's our strategy. Cool, cool, cool. So there's three basic categories, and there are more than this, but for the purposes of this podcast, all of the anti-epileptic drugs fall into three basic classes. The first class we'll talk about are drugs that modulate ion influx. Cool. Uh, and that's in the, the presynaptic and the postsynaptic excitatory um, neurons. So the key ion channel that, makes your, that causes the action potentials that gets this going is a sodium channel. So all of your ions typically have a sodium channel, and it's voltage-gated sodium channel. So once you get a stimulus, uh, the voltage reaches a threshold, and once the once the neuron reaches that threshold, an action potential is generated, and you get a massive firing of um, of sodium into the cell. Now, if you can block the sodium channel, so if you can stop sodium coming from outside of the neuron into the neuron, then you stop some of the excitation that's happening on the presynaptic neuron, and that's effectively how quite a few different drugs work. So, carbamazepine. Sodium valproate, lamotrigine, phenytoin, topiramate, and zanisamide, all of these have that kind of effect. 
they block the sodium channel um, on the presynaptic neuron. If you block that off, then you don't get any sodium flying in and you can't generate the glutamate going into the synaptic cleft. So that works really well for sodium channels. There is another channel, the calcium channel. So there's something called the HVA calcium channel. So calcium is another positively charged ion. And again, with influx from the outside of the neuron, inside of the neuron, you get the action potential being generated. So if you can stop the calcium, again, you're stopping some of those action potentials being generated. And there's two different groups of agents that do this. So lamotrigine, which also messes around with sodium channels, also blocks off the calcium channel. So you get kind of a dual effect with lamotrigine. And then gabapentin and pregabalin, both of those, a lot of people think that they mess around with the inhib inhibitory pathway uh, postsynaptically. Actually, they work on calcium channel block, uh, calcium channels on the presynaptic um, presynaptic neuron as it stands. So both of those indirectly will block calcium flying in and stop the action potential being generated in that way. So you stop that electricity in its in its uh, in its way. And they're also used in chronic pain, aren't they? Yeah, the absolutely. Gabapentin and pregabalin, your, your chronic neuropathic pain. Yeah, so it's exactly in the same way here. So gabapentin and pregabalin, though they mess around with calcium channels, um, it's thought that, that those action potentials have got um, a place in neuropathic pain as well, so triggering pain impulses. Mm -hmm. Both of those have got really, really good evidence to say if you can stop the uh, calcium influx presynaptically, you stop pain signals in the nerves, which is really, really effective. Cool. There's also the postsynaptic um, excitatory neuron, which also has receptors in it, which causes calcium and sodium to fly in. Uh, in particular, there's something called a type 2 calcium channel. That's on the postsynaptic neuron. And valproate, zanisamide, and ethosuximide, they all have activities blocking that postsynaptically. Um, so valproate, that's why valproate is very, very effective. It works on the presynaptic um, neuron blocking sodium channels and it also works postsynaptically uh, on the calcium channels so you get a kind of double effect from it. So effectively all of those are stopping the electrical impulse through the nerve and electricity is your problem to start with anyway. So that's kind of your modulation of ion influx and they're your key players with, um, with that class. Cool. The other main mechanism that you'll get um, uh, we talked about the inhibitory pathways so that's making more of that inhibition so propagating GABA so these drugs are just making more GABA to make that chloride chloride channel um, have more chloride flowing into the postsynaptic neuron uh, and therefore you're stopping the the positivity and generate generating the action potential so again you've got to be a bit got to have this image in your head now that on that postsynaptic cleft we have this uh, chloride chloride ion channel so a chloride channel and on that has a bunch of different receptors um, that will open it up so one of them is the GABA receptor so that's where the actual neurotransmitter will come in uh, it will bind to it and it'll open the chloride channel and then you'll get chloride that will fly in and stop dampen down any of that electrical activity and that's all natural that chloride ion channel will also have a benzodiazepine receptor. So we use our benzodiazepines, so diazepam, lorazepam, midazolam, all of those will bind to that postsynaptic uh, chloride channel, open it up and allow more chloride in, which then dampens everything down. There's equally another one for barbiturates, 
the barbiturates will bind to that receptor, open up the chloride, uh, and it will allow chloride to flow to go back in. Typically, benzos and barbiturates, there are go-tos for status epilepticus as our first line, aren't they? So our protocol in ED mm. for status epilepticus would be four milligrams of IV lorazepam because you're really getting lots of benzo into that receptor to allow loads of chloride to fly in and stop propagation of the seizures. So it's a really, really effective, very potent mechanism for that. That being said, if you open up too much chloride and you don't allow any kind of excitation, then you end up with people going really drowsy and really lethargic, which is our classic side effect for benzodiazepines and barbiturates. Losing the desire to breathe. Losing the desire to breathe, indeed. <laughs> so there's a couple of other ones as well. So there's a couple of drugs called Vigabatrin and Tigabine. I have not heard of those. Yeah, so these are more novel. Mm. And what they do is one of them, the Tigabine, um, that basically causes the uh, GABAminergic inhibitory neurone to recycle more GABA. So basically you get, it, it potentiates more GABA to be spit out into the synapse, uh, and then that therefore allows more chloride to go into the, um, the post-inhibitory post, um, neurone. Uh, and then the, the other one, the Vigabatrin, also stops GABA in the synaptic cleft be reuptaken, so it allows more of the GABA to be sitting there around in the uh, in the cleft, so more of it is activated. Because all of these neurotransmitters, they eventually just get reuptaken after a little while, so you just have more of it flying around in there. So that's kind of how our um, how our GABAminergic type agents will work. All of them are potentiating that chloride ion. And then the third basic one, uh, a kind of the miscellaneous group to a certain extent. So they're the novel mechanisms. Um, and the main novel mechanism that we have, um, the one to really point out, uh, would be a very, very popular one called Levetiracetam. Ah. So Capra, Levetiracetam. Very pleased it gets changed to Capra. That's it. It's, uh, I think they, they, they went with a very basic name just because it is that hard. It took me years to learn how to say Levetiracetam, literally. Um, and it's got a slightly novel mechanism. It doesn't work on iron channels and it doesn't work on GABA. What it does is we talked originally about that action potential getting to the end of the presynaptic neuron, and then the glutamate comes out. Now, if you look in a little bit more detail about how the glutamate gets released, it actually gets released um, through a vesicle that, it, that comes out of the um, postsynaptic cleft, um, which is stimulated through calcium channels. What Kepra does is it stops that vesicle coming out of the neuron, so it effectively stops any glutamate from getting into the postsynaptic cleft, into the uh, synapse. And therefore, if you haven't got any glutamate in the cleft, um, you don't get any NDMA action, and therefore you don't get propagation of the uh, electrical activity. So Kepra is one that's got a novel mechanism. There are a few other drugs that have got other novel mechanisms, but. I think Kepra is the only one that's really worth talking about without getting incredibly in-depth. So cool. that's kind of a whistle-stop about your three key mechanisms of action on how we're looking at seizures. Cool. Right then, so let's start uh, going through some of those in turn then. So let's start first with uh, probably most commonly used ones, sodium valparate. Sodium valparate, yeah. Also known as epilim. Yep, that's right. So the other thing I forgot to mention actually in the... Um, the previous bit. So valparate has actually been shown to have some um, 
inhibitory effects on GABA as well. So we talked about valproate having effects on sodium channels. We talked about it having effects on calcium channels. So it works on that ion channel way. But actually it's been postulated to have some effect on that chloride ion as well. So actually it potentiates chloride coming in as well. So it's got multiple mechanisms of action, um, oh. which makes it a really, really powerful anti-epileptic drug. And it's actually first line uh, recommended by NICE for quite a lot of different seizure types. So tonic-clonic, um, absence, partial, you can use Valprate actually quite successfully for quite a lot of different seizure profiles. And it's actually now unlicensed even on our um, status protocol, isn't it? Yeah, so um, sodium Valprate here is now um, the... Uh, yeah, so it used to be phenytoin was our yeah, first right. line of treatment for... Yeah. Um, for status epilepticus, whereas now it's, it's we've, we've changed it to sodium. Yeah, so, so status refractory to benzos mm. that we can't stop with uh, with lorazepam, sodium valproate is now our first line. And you're quite right, it used to be phenytoin, but we've moved to valproate now because it is a bit safer, we think, all around than, uh, than phenytoin is. So I usually think of valproate as one of the broadest spectrum mm. um, anti-epileptic drugs, if you want to give it a sort of antibiotic kind of spin. Um, and it's got very good use in status epilepticus as well. Now, it does have its problems, Valproate, and the one that's probably really important to remember is it's about its uh, teratinogenic potential. Yes. So Valproate in ladies of childbearing potential, you have to be very careful with. Um, it's a known teratinogenic, can cause spina bifida uh, and other problems in, a, in an unborn fetus. Uh, and there's been a lot of cases of um, children being born with uh, deformities off the back of off the back of um, their mothers being put on valproate so in ladies of childbearing potential um, the if we're using valproate then we, they need to potentially be on a pregnancy prevention scheme uh, we need to be giving them pregnancy tests um, or we need to think about switching their therapy to something else that's more um, suitable for pregnancy so it's a really important one um, we've got a, we had a massive um, drive in Nottingham uh, when this came out from the MHRA to get their neurologists to review their patients who are on Valparate or for um, childbearing potential. So it is a... Um, so that's a fairly big thing then if you're preparing for an OSCE and, um, or just revising in general, you know, sodium Valparate, if you're having to have that conversation and your patient is female, yep. that's, you know, this is the conversation yep. to have. You definitely don't want to miss that one. That's <coughs> probably a critical fail or something if you don't mention that one, I would have thought. Um, so very good stuff. Um, it comes in a variety of different formulations. So it comes uh, as an IV injection, which is what we use for status or people that can't swallow because they're unwell. Uh, comes in tablets, comes in liquid, comes in like little sachets. There's loads of different ways you can get it in. So it makes it a very robust drug um, pharmaceutically for us as well. All of those preparations are pretty much interchangeable. Cool. So the dose, the frequency is all pretty much the same. You, you don't have to mess around too much with the Good. dose, and that, that saves us a lot of time and effort, um, particularly in ED when we've got people who are flat that we need to give them IV. It has got a bit of an idiosyncratic adverse drug profile. So it's been associated particularly acutely with uh, pancreatitis, so it can cause an acute pancreatitis. So if you've got your person with a lipase through the sky, who's just been started with um, on Valparate for whatever it might be, um, you can consider that as a potential um, cause. potential cause of it. 
uh, can cause a hyperammonemia, mm. so it naturally raises your ammonia levels through a very complicated mechanism, in which I'm not going to try and explain. <laughs> um, also, equally with the pancreatitis, through the same mechanism, you can get an acute hepatitis off the back of it. Um, can cause, uh, is it called hirsutism? Hirsutism. Hirsutism, so um, increased hair growth. Um, and it can also cause your blood dyscrasias, so uh, neutropenias, thrombocytopenias, things like this, particularly <coughs> particularly in the initial stages of treatment. <laughs> so always want to keep an eye out. You do have to make sure that people on Valparate have got their bloods monitored six monthly to yearly, depending on um, their profile. We do sometimes do blood levels with um, Epilim. It's not brilliantly correlated to efficacy, um, plasma levels, but it is useful if you suspect toxic type reactions. Um, your classic toxic reaction for Valprate is sort of drowsiness, lethargy, uh, ataxia, these sort of type symptoms that you'd be worried about a toxic reaction. Um, but generally it's pretty well tolerated as it stands. Cool. So good drug, really good drug Valprate. Um, the main thing you always have to remember is pregnancy for that one. That's the thing that always worries us. On to phenytoin. Phenytoin. So phenytoin, as you said, was our previous first line. One of the oldest of the anti-epileptic drugs. As you've said. Actually a very powerful anti-arrhythmic as well. Which is why we, every patient had to go on monitoring. That's and, the one, exactly. You know, yeah. And this is actually the reason why a lot of trusts now um, have gone away from phenytoin as their first line for status. Um, very effective drug. It's it's an incredibly powerful sodium channel blocker uh, in the CNS. But equally, because it's pretty non-specific for cardiac sodium channels, um, you can get nasty arrhythmias off the back of it. Um, you can put people into blocks, put people into VT, all these sort of things. So it's quite a worrying one. So particularly if you're giving it IV, you have to give it relatively slowly and you have to monitor people's ECG and BP when you're giving it. There has been some catastrophic events with them when people have been given phenytoin too quickly in particular uh, and it's caused what's caused deaths um, in, in the past. So it's a bit of a worrying drug in, in that. It's got a very narrow therapeutic index and it is a, typically a very difficult uh, drug to use therapeutically. So it, it suffers from something called saturation kinetics, uh, which is something that really worries us as nerdy pharmacists. <laughs> So basically, it's a drug that doesn't have a linear correlation with its plasma concentration. Okay. So to give you a concept, um, if you give somebody 5 milligram of morphine, um, they'll have X effect. If you give them 10 milligram of morphine, you can typically expect that effect to be doubled. That's called linear, linear kinetics. Phenytoin, you can give someone, for example, a gram of phenytoin, and it will be effective, efficacious. If you gave them 1.1 grams, they'd be pushed into an outrageously toxic level because it has a exponential curve in terms of its plasma concentrations. Uh, it's got an incredible amount of interactions because it, it's processed heavily by the liver. So it interacts with a lot of different drugs and it's one of our classic enzyme inhibitors. Uh. So it typically will um, sort of potentiate um, metabolism of other drugs particularly things like doax and anticoagulants you have to be really careful with phenytoin um, it will just pretty much obliterate their plasma concentrations Excellent. and it's very highly albumin bound so it's one of these drugs that sticks to albumin for dear life um, 
and there have been a couple of cases I've been involved in a couple of cases where we have older patients um, who have been established on phenytoin um, who have not been eating um, you know they've got older they've got more frail they've lost weight their albumin tends to plummet but their dose of phenytoin stays the same because their albumin plummets their free phenytoin levels increase and they go toxic on the same dose and it's an incredibly difficult situation to diagnose and manage um, because you have to lower the dose then you tend to get seizures very very difficult one to to, to um, deal with it also has a lot of adverse drug reactions um, so some quite classic ones which are gingival hyperplasia so it causes swelling of the gums can cause tooth problems so people are typically predisposed to more dental issues being on phenytoin um, it can have quite nasty CNS toxic effects, so it will cause a nystagmus, diplopia, ataxia, even at relatively therapeutic concentrations. So you have to be very careful with toxic phenytoin reactions uh, because it interacts with everything. Uh, on top of that, we said that valproate was brilliant because all the different preparations are pretty much exactly the same. Phenytoin, if you change a capsule to a tablet, to a liquid, to an IV, you pretty much have to use a different dose for every single <laughs> one of them um, because the bioavailability is so different depending on what you give. So long story short, phenytoin, great drug in terms of stopping seizures, but incredibly difficult <coughs> to use um, therapeutically for patients. So typically these days it's not used much anymore. Very few people go on it. Cool. And then on to number three. On to the next one. What have we got next? Which on is this? carbamazepine. Tegretol, carbamazepine. I should be saying the, the brand names, really. So a lot of people know their anti-epileptics through brand names. They're, the companies that have um, marketed these drugs, they have spent a fortune on basically making you associate the drug with the brand. Um, so we talked about Valproate first time. That's Epilim. 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 Yep. So a lot of patients will say, oh, I take Epilim. That is sodium valproate. Uh, do you know phenytoin? Phenytoin's much harder. No. Epinutin. So I just noticed phenytoin. Yeah, yeah. That one's not as famous, granted. But epinutin. Epinutin um, is the uh, is the the brand name for it. Carbamazepine is Tegretol. Yes. Quite a quite a famous brand name. Again, you'll get people that always um, will always uh, use that. Again, another broad spectrum agent that works on sodium channels. Um, it's got a bit. It's a little bit more useful, particularly in your. Um, partial seizures so it's one that for some reason has particularly good evidence for, for complex partial seizures and um, your petit mal style seizures um, that being said it's very poor for absence seizures so for the seizures where you get those sort of momentary lapses where they sort of go in and out of consciousness Tegretol tends to make that worse for some reason I don't actually know why but it tends to make that worse um, the main thing to worry about with carbamazepine is it's probably the worst in terms of interaction profile with other drugs. It's again a very powerful enzyme inducer. So it will drop the plasma concentration of a lot of other drugs and in particular we talked about anticoagulants. So if you're ever starting a drug with somebody who's already on carbamazepine, um, do an interaction check on the BNF because it interacts with a lot of different things and they can be quite clinically significant. So you have to be very, very careful with that one. Uh, it's a drug that's classically associated with Stephen Johnson syndrome, toxic, ep toxic epidermal necro uh, necrolysis. Oh dear. So that's this nasty skin sloughing reaction. Uh, we had a we had a case of it, I think, last 
last year, one of our ACPs dealt with dealt with the case of Stephen Johnson's. Oh, yeah, it wasn't Carbazvine; it was something oh. else actually. But um, that's one that we that we do worry about. Um, classically, in your um, I think it's your Korean and your Chinese ethnic origin. I'm not 100 percent sure. There's subtypes of. Um, ethnic people that are more likely to get Stephen Johnson syndrome on carbamazepine. So you effectively never use carbamazepine in people from sort of the Far East. So you're, I think it's Korea, I think it's Malaysia, these kind of areas. There's actually a list of that, I'll double check it and Google that for me. Um, and the other one is it's classically associated with a hyponatremia. So patients on carbamazepine will tend to develop a chronic hyponatremia. Typically asymptomatic, but if it gets quite bad, then they can end up with a symptomatic um, hyponatremia off the back of it. Cool. Uh, so those are sort of our older type drugs, I guess mm. you'd say. So they're the ones of really good efficacy, but like we said earlier, they've got loads of adverse drug reactions that we have to worry about. They're, they're difficult to use. Cool. So we'll move on to a couple, probably the two of our most commonly used of the newer generation drugs. So the first one is Levetiracetam, Capra. See, I always called it levetiracetam. Levetiracetam. That's not wrong. Levetiracetam. Yeah, I've always... Capra. Capra. As I tweeted, the, it's just Capra. Just call it Capra. Just call it Capra. Yeah. Yeah. Levit <laughs> I, I say levetiracetam, but you're not wrong, as it stands anyway. Thank so, you. <laughs> so, as we said, um, good option in nice guidance for partial seizures, but we can also use that for secondary generalisation as well, and it is pretty damn good. It's got a, actually a very good evidence base for status epilepticus as well. Mm. Uh, quite broad spectrum agent. So now mm. we put it in our status guidelines, second line to um, to Valproate now. Um, and it's typically got a much lower interaction profile. Uh, and, and there's the Eclipse trial that was comparing Capra to phenytoin that's in, right. in uh, children's Children, status yeah. epilepticus, which there was a previous podcast of that. That's it. Yeah. Link back to that one. Yeah. Uh, so typically, much lower problems in terms of adverse drug reactions and interactions. It's a cleaner drug typically. Um, the the one that you do worry about with Keppra is it's renally excreted. So patients with CKD are more likely to get the toxic effects of um, of levetiracetam, and it's, you have to be more careful with the dose for that. Um, but you'll actually see a lot of people started on levetiracetam as their sort of first line agent, just because it's very well tolerated typically. Um, and the other one of the newer agents to worry about, um, to talk about is lamotrigine. Uh, uh, so we talked earlier that that lamictal, lamictal, lamictal is mm. the uh, the brand name. Um, we talked earlier that that works on multiple different ion influxes, so it's got broad spectrum agents. It's another one that unfortunately is associated with Stephen Johnson syndrome. Uh, same population of patients to worry about there. Um, but again, it's got a, probably the lowest of the adverse drug pro, uh, reactions. So typically, it's if you it's one that you always start very slow. So you start at about 25 milligram once a day, and you can build all the way up to 200, 300 milligram uh, twice a day. So quite a lot of it, but you have to get there very slowly. And if you go slow, then you tend to find lower uh, incidence of adverse drug effects. Um, the only problem with uh, lamotrigine is you can only give it orally. So if your patient is flat and you need to get stuff in, then you can't really use lamotrigine, whereas Keppra um, is useful because it's got the intravenous route as well and it's just pound for pound the same. Mm -hmm. So those are a couple of the newer agents which are, which are really, really useful. Cool. They're probably the key ones to talk about. I suppose the other one to talk about are the benzodiazepines, yep. very briefly. So very few people these days uh, take regular benzodiazepines. Yeah, these are more the, the rescue, yeah. you know, um, children will have, say, uh, um, 
Reptile. Yeah. Uh, Medazolam or something. Yeah, or so we'd have Reptile Dazepam, or, or we'd have we, Buckle Medazolam, typically. Yeah. Which or, is your... or we'll use IV Lorazepam, like we talked about in status, yeah. Yeah, so typically now, yeah, we reserve these for, um, for status rather than prophylaxis because they've got too many adverse drug effects uh, associated with them. Uh, and they're very drowsy and they affect people's um, sort of life, so we don't really do it. And they're addictive and people get tolerance. And um, The only real time you see patients on regular benzodiazepines is you see people on clobazam and clonazepam. Uh, clobazam, typically, they might take it short term if they've had a bout of seizures because they're, they tend to be high risk for having further mm. seizures in the postictal period. Um, you see people on five to seven days of clobazam um, after an episode of seizures. Uh, and clonazepam can be used more regularly because it's less sedating. Uh, so they're both useful benzodiazepines for longer term use. Your diazepams, your lorazepams, your midazolams tend to be reserved just for uh, status type situations. Occasionally, from my, own, from my own experience, like the clonazepam tends to be a this is a first this patient has had a first seizure I talked to neurology yes we'll see them in clinic I'll start them on a short course of this in the meanwhile yeah. before we see them or, or, or add this to their regime because they've had a seizure despite being on treatment etc. and there's a couple of different things there so number one like we said there's the risk that um, they've had a seizure and there's something going on that's predisposing them to a higher frequency of seizures so they're getting a little bit of extra cover during that period and there's also a little bit about safety netting. Mm. So actually, if a neurologist wants you to bring somebody back or wants to investigate, they'd actually much rather them not have a seizure during that time period. Yes. And they'd prefer to over-treat a little bit during that time period. Mm. So there's a couple of different bits with that. But there's really good evidence for clobazam. There's a couple of good papers I've read previously about using short-term clobazam on top of um, whatever their normal regime might be. Excellent. So, good stuff. Bits of housekeeping before we... Yeah, so just thinking sort of at the audience here about things that you'll have to consider. So uh, I remember when I was in pharmacy school, one of the classic ones we got is um, a patient comes and sees you. Uh, it's more of a GP situation, but it could well be an ED situation. I have had one of these. And they've said they're having greater frequency of seizures, even though their medicines haven't changed and they've been seizure-free for years and years and years. But they've noticed the way their tablets look have changed. So they got a different brand or... Potentially, or a different manufacturer. And this is a problem. So we we have to remember that people take anti-epileptics for effectively their entire Life. lives. Yeah. It's, it, this is a <laughs> lifelong treatment. And this is why adverse drug reactions for people on anti-epileptics, really, you have to think very carefully about. Because this is something that somebody's not taking for a week or a month. They're taking this for the rest of their life and it really will impact their ability to do things. So adverse drug reactions are a big a big thing. The plasma concentrations of some of these drugs we've already talked about can be really, really narrow. And different drugs, um, different brands of drugs, different manufacturers of drugs have, can have ever so slightly different amounts, pound for pound, of drug in them. Um, a 100 milligram phenytoin tablet made by Accord might have a 100 milligram in it. Um, a 100 milligram tablet of uh, phenytoin made by whoever else could have 97 milligram in it that's within our tolerances that three milligram in somebody taking benetoin can actually make a massive difference as a result of that uh, the mhra actually released um, a list of anti-epileptic agents which should not be substituted so these people must have the same brand and ideally the same manufacturer all the time mm. and typically the ones that are um, the ones you should never switch are phenytoin 
phenobarbitone if they're still on it, uh, primadone, which is actually a prodrug of phenobarbital, and tegretol, carbamazepine. So the MHRA typically advises that those drugs are not switched because there's a high risk that if they are switched, um, they'll potentially you can precipitate seizures from them or you can send someone toxic with them. There's then a group that we should try and keep consistent but are less worrying. So that would encompass things like valproate, things like lamotrigine, uh, topiramate, clobazam, um, a couple of other ones as well. And they're ones, if we have to, we can switch them, but otherwise we should typically try and keep people on the right, on the same dose, uh, same brand. And then there's one where it doesn't really make a difference. <laughs> so that's things like Kepra, Levetiracetam. Uh, typically they say it's very unlikely to cause a problem if they change brands. Uh, gabapentin, Pregabalin, uh, and Lacosamide as well. Um, all of those are very likely, unlikely to cause any problems if you switch brands. Cool. So if you do get a patient who says to you, oh, I've changed brand and I think my seizures have been playing up, we might want to think about getting them back onto what they were on originally. Cool. Thank you very much, Kanal. No problems. You're most, most welcome. There is a lot there that we've covered. Mm-hmm. That is uh, excellent. Uh, any good resources to look at? So the Epilepsy Society... Yeah, uh, it's got brilliant. There's actually a lot of very useful stuff for healthcare professionals on that. Um, if you're if you're here at this trust, then the status epilepticus guidelines are very very good. If you can get your hands on them, all trusts will have a status guideline. Um, and there is the British Society of Neurologists, Neurology Society, I think it's called. Uh, they have epilepsy guidelines, uh, particularly around initiating different agents and monitoring. And then there's NICE on um, on uh, epilepsy, nice. and which agents you should consider first line, uh, the monitoring, these sort of things as well. Brilliant. And we will link all that on the website, takeorally.com. This podcast will be out on uh, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. Um, we'll uh, put together a, an infographic which will, you can find on Instagram. Yeah, might if might you need look, infra- yeah. <laughs> might need that infographic. Take Orally is also on, uh, so you can find Take Orally on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as well. Thank you very much, Canal. JT, it's been a pleasure. Happy Valentine's Day again. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Much love. <laughs>